0: From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, September 20th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. In Pakistan, it's not just street protesters who are angry about the innocence of Muslim videos the country's what is,
1: politicians are too. It's painful to us, and we expect countries to recognize that.
0: And later, while U.S. manufacturing jobs are coming back from China.
2: The cost of labor in China is constantly going up. The fuel to get it here is constantly going up. A lot of the benefits of doing business in China have deteriorated.
3: The world is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon, October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last-chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 Central on PBS. (music)
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The latest U.S. embassy to feel the heat of anti-American protests is in Islamabad, Pakistan. Today, demonstrators there clashed with Pakistani soldiers outside the city's diplomatic enclave. There have been similar protests elsewhere in Pakistan, sparked by the same video that has angered so many Muslims around the globe. The Pakistani government's response, though, is different. It has officially declared a national holiday tomorrow to register its own protest over the video. Fahad Desmouk reports from Karachi.
1: The reaction to the Innocence of Muslims video started a few days late in Pakistan compared to the violent protests in Egypt and Tunisia. But demonstrations ramped up quickly. In Karachi, an Islamic group last Sunday attempted to storm the U.S. consulate. Police opened fire and killed one person. Several others were injured. Today there were violent demonstrations in Islamabad. The Pakistani government has gone on the defensive. Prime Minister Raja Parvez Ashraf ordered internet service providers to block YouTube. All of it, not just the offending videos. Interior Minister Rahman Malik has asked Interpol to take up the matter. The government even declared this Friday to be a national holiday and named it Love of the Prophet Day, a form of protest by the government. Not everyone is happy with the government's reaction. Iqbal Haider is a former Minister of Justice and is currently the President of the Forum for a Secular Pakistan.
4: What way would you serve your cause? Pakistan economy will suffer. Pakistani properties will suffer. Pakistani workers who are daily wage earners will suffer.
1: The Pakistan People's Party that controls the government is regarded as a secular party. But when it comes to issues related to blasphemy, like all previous governments in the country, it has had to appease protesters. For the love and honor of the Prophet, they say. But it's not just Islamist extremists and radicals who were offended by the video. One of the groups marching to the US consulate in Karachi tomorrow will be the Pakistan Tehri e insaf the party is led by Pakistani cricket legend Imran Khan and boasts a significant following among the country's Western-educated upper class. Arif Alvi is the party's secretary-general. You can't come into a society and say, this should be painful and this should not be painful. What is painful to us is painful to us. And we expect countries to recognize that. The U.S. government has also gone on the defensive. Local radio stations are airing paid messages by the U.S. Embassy of Hillary Clinton distancing her government from the offending video.
0: Let me state very clearly, and I hope it is obvious, that the United States government had absolutely nothing to do with this video. We absolutely reject its content and message.
1: But for Arif Alvi and many others like him, this statement is unlikely to affect their sentiments. It's not good enough to say that the United States government has nothing to do with it. I know they have nothing to do with it, but it is their responsibility to curb such actions. For the world, I'm Fahad Desmukh in Karachi,
0: Pakistan. As we mentioned earlier, protesters in Islamabad clashed with police today as they tried to reach the U.S. embassy. Reporter John Boone with Britain's Guardian newspaper is in the Pakistani capital, and he describes some of the violence there.
5: Directly outside the front gates of Islamabad's poshest five-star hotel, there's really been vicious street fighting. We think there was more than thousand people on the scene, most of them students affiliated to hard-right religious political parties and they were involved in vicious street fighting with the police. A large number, several dozen policemen had been seriously injured. People were throwing tear gas canisters back and forth, trying to shift some of the sea containers that authorities had placed at the end of streets, precisely to stop this sort of violence, which is actually supposed to happen tomorrow, because tomorrow is Friday, the traditional day of prayers. None of this, I should say, was anywhere near the US embassy. It was basically on the edge of what's known as the diplomatic enclave.
0: I know you've been writing about this for your paper today, but you've also written a piece about the fact that drone attacks, American drone attacks, have been going on for such a long time in Pakistan that they have now made it into popular culture. Tell us exactly how that's happened and in what form.
5: Well, that's right. Obviously, as you know, drones are an enormous and very controversial issue here in Pakistan. They're at the centre of the political debate in many ways. So there's this very interesting popular song that's been originally recorded for a Pashto language TV station. That's the language talked in the tribal areas between Afghanistan and Pakistan, and it's a very bizarre song because it describes a um, very sort of alluring dancing girl and her various attributes. We learn from this song of her her sweet lips, her coquettish snare, her smile is compared to the morning dew. I mean, it's all very kind of some of the standard themes that you get in love poetry all over the world. But the chorus for this song is this line, my gaze is as fatal as a drone attack. That would be the kind of missile attacks launched from CIA operated drones in the tribal areas against militants. And it's just a peculiar moment in the popular culture, I think. And I'm told that in the wedding halls and music shops and indeed blaring from cars in the tribal areas, you can hear this song. So it's proving popular, but some people, some other artists... Poets, composers, songwriters have been a little bit critical saying that really this very serious issue that leads to people's deaths shouldn't be part of of what is really a rather kind of saucy song from one of these garish Pashto telly movies. The particular singer who performs this song both in the movie and also in the the track that's been separated out and, and has been available on YouTube and been racking up some hits, she's called Satara Eunice. And she's delved in this sort of area before. There was another song that she did last year where the title and indeed chorus is Don't Chase Me, I'm an Illusion, a Suicide Bomb. So it's as I say it's an interesting moment where this very serious issue seems to have blended into the popular culture in the tribal areas.
0: The video itself and we're going to post it at the world.org. The video itself it looks pretty provocative with or without the mention of of the drone the kind of full throttle belly dancing and heavy midriff gazing mm. that we see on this. I mean there's a lot of thrusting in this video. Is this common? It seems antithetical to what we're thinking about when we think about the protest of hardliners. Is this kind Of video common? Is it incredibly popular?
5: My understanding is this video is very much part of the genre of these slightly tacky, pulpy, saucy videos that are churned out by the little cottage film industry in the tribal areas. And to use a cliche much favoured by foreign correspondents in Pakistan, this is a country of many contradictions. On the one hand, you can have hardline Islamic clerics and religious parties organising dreadful, violent street clashes in Islamabad, as we've seen today. But at the same time, you can have these sorts of cultural artefact videos, which don't seem to fit, but actually it's all part of Pakistan, and Pakistanis wouldn't necessarily see a contradiction.
0: Uh, John Boone writes about the video itself for The Guardian. He's based in Islamabad. Thank you, John.
5: Thank you very much.
0: In Syria, opposition activists say a regime airstrike hit a gas station in the north of the country today. The explosion that followed killed several people. Fierce fighting continues between the regime of President Bashar Assad and rebel fighters in the country. Human rights groups estimate that more than 23,000 Syrians have died in this conflict. Borzu Daragahi has been reporting from northern Syria. He is the Middle East correspondent for the Financial Times. Borzu, you've been to a region of Syria Where you witnessed something interesting, the embryonic stage of a new government or at least new local governments. Describe what you saw.
6: Yeah, indeed. Uh, in one town uh, I went to, uh, they were uh, holding a, a meeting of the local council there, a sort of self-appointed local government. Uh, they were holding it outside right on the street, and they were uh, bringing together some plastic chairs and a, and a table, uh, pouring some tea, uh, beginning discussions. Just as people were gathering around, a, uh, uh, one of Bashar al-Assad's uh, uh, Russian fighter jets started flying above, and uh, word came that a, uh, uh, one of those jets had hit a nearby town, uh, causing a, a dozen uh, injuries. Uh, and so people just scampered away, and this, uh, it, was, it was sort of emblematic of, of what's going on there. Uh, this attempt at uh, a democracy and, and transparency was quickly scuttled as people ran away and uh, hid in shelters.
0: So what's the larger picture here? Does it look as if there are local leaders, perhaps already those who are council leaders, who are trying to coalesce and form some kind of government? And if so, based on what model?
6: Very much so, it seems that people are trying to uh, uh, govern themselves. Uh, they are trying to come up with some kind of way of uh, showing to themselves as well as to the world that they can take over once Bashar al-Assad uh, leaves power. But they are hampered. Uh, there's a number of difficulties. Um, one of them is that there is a lot of divisions. This is a problem that has bedeviled the Syrian opposition since the beginning of this conflict. Uh, there's not a lot of unity. Even from one town to another town, there's tensions and, and mistrust. And and so on. Um, And another point of contention is uh, what will be the dominating kind of law of the land. Um, Right now they talk about Sharia. They talk about Islamic law as the the law of the land. Uh, But it's clear that they don't really understand what they're talking about when they talk about Sharia. And what they really mean is just some sort of alternative to the corrupt and brutal and arbitrary uh, Ba'ath Party system that has dominated the country for many decades.
0: Can you explain what you just said there, Brozu? We're talking about people who we would assume would be used to the term Sharia law, at least, and you say that they don't really have a handle on what they're talking about. Can you explain that?
6: Yeah, I mean, they referred many times to, you know, we're going to, um, you know, apply Sharia law, that we're all under the principle of Sharia here, and I would ask them what they meant. Do you mean that, you know, um, men can take four or five wives or something? Do you mean that, you know, uh, a punishment for crime is that the guy's hand gets cut off? And they were like, no, 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 that's not what we mean at all. All we mean is that um, Sharia means justice. Sharia means uh, fairness and and transparency. So it was clear that they were not very well versed in Islamic scriptures, so to speak. They were just using Sharia as a catch-all to contrast with the previous regime.
0: Do you know if uh, similar attempts at local lawmaking or governing are happening in other places?
6: It seems that every single part of Syria that's under rebel control has some sort of local administrative structure in place uh, to varying degrees of authority uh, over the, uh, the, the area, uh, as well as to the armed fighters that are, uh, uh, you know, at the forefront of the battle against Bashar al-Assad. Um, and it also seems that even in areas, and this is I know from talking to Syrian activists, in areas that are under the control of the regime, um, there are these shadow structures, uh, secret committees of people meeting uh, to plan for the day when Bashar al Assad will leave their area.
0: Thank you. Porzu Diragahi, Middle East correspondent for the Financial Times. He is now in Cairo after having just left Syria. Thanks a lot, Borzu.
6: It's my pleasure.
0: The all women's block on the Palestinian election ballot coming up. Also, our GeoQuiz and Global Hit. This is The World on PRI.
3: The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Across India today, shopkeepers, traders and laborers tried to show what it might be like if they weren't around. They closed markets in a nationwide day of protest against the possible introduction of big box stores such as Walmart onto their turf. The BBC's Rahul Tandon has been out on the streets in Kolkata. What do the protests that you've seen there, Rahul, look like?
7: The protests have been huge in Kolkata. This is one of the world's biggest cities. It's a very vibrant place. Today, no taxis on the streets, no buses on the street, no auto rickshaws on the streets at all. Schools were shut. Shops were all closed down. And that has been a similar picture across some Indian cities. In other parts of India though, like Mumbai and Delhi, things have functioned pretty much as near normal. And in terms of the protesters, there's lots of political opponents of the government, but there are ordinary people like shopkeepers, like laborers, who are worried that if the likes of Walmart comes in, their businesses could collapse.
0: You spoke to some of the protesters, Rahul, yourself. Uh, Let's hear from one of them. Who is this first person we'll hear from?
7: This is the leader of the protest in Calcutta, Beeman Bose. Initially,
3: they will supply in the cheaper rate. And when they will smash all these small traders, many people will be jobless.
0: So he's saying that eventually the small traders will will uh, be put out of business. You know, this is of course the same kind of argument that we hear here in the United States about big box stores as well. The very fact, though, that people will be able to buy stuff cheaply is that not appealing to India's growing middle class. These shops would give them more of a choice.
7: Absolutely. And I think that's where India's at a real contradiction at the moment. Whilst you have millions of people who don't want these stores in, in a country of more than 1.2 billion, there are millions of others who would welcome them with open arms. I've been speaking to some shoppers from India's new cash-rich middle class. This is what they have to say.
4: If they're coming, it's good. We're very happy. Uh, It's uh, more clean and washed. We like that.
7: The supermarket, the advantage is that
8: you don't have to shop like this. You can go much cleaner, much better way. And these are people, the standard of living is increasing. The middle class is becoming upper middle class, the upper middle class becoming rich. So it is better that this kind of culture comes here and this kind of facilities are available to the people.
4: My income is more than the general public. So I will definitely go to that market, not this market, because I don't feel like coming here <laughs>
0: What she's saying, she would definitely go to a Walmart-type store versus some of the local stores?
7: Absolutely. And I think most of the people in the middle class that I've spoken to would welcome the likes of Walmart in here with open arms. And, you know, let's not forget here that we're talking about supermarkets, because in many other areas of Indian life, you have huge American companies. Talk to any kid in Calcutta. His favorite place to eat is either Subway Subway or KFC at the moment and the days of the 70s when I used to come to India as a child when the Indian Prime Minister Indra Gandhi said to Coca-Cola you can't come in here unless you give me the recipe well surprisingly they said no to her those days are long gone now so I think in spite of the huge protest today a lot of Indians really have now a growing affinity with American products and with the government in Delhi very very sure that in spite of what's happening across the country it is not going to change its mind I think it's only a question of time before we see the likes of Indian shoppers pushing their trolleys around a Walmart. Thank
0: you very much. Rahul Tandon, reporter for the BBC based in Kolkata, India. Thanks a lot.
7: Thank you very much.
0: We have collected pictures, videos and tweets about the market shutdown in India today. They're all at theworld.org. If you search Google for Aung San Suu Kyi, the Burmese Nobel laureate and pro-democracy leader, you get nearly 39 million results. If you Google Sain, Myanmar's current president, you get a little under two million. It's a curious balance of power and influence, and it's one that's being tested this week as Aung San Suu Kyi makes a highly anticipated tour of the United States. Next week, President Sein makes a lower-key trip to the U.N. General Assembly in New York. Reporter Bruce Wallace looks at their evolving relationship.
9: Aung San Suu Kyi has played a lot of roles in her 67 years. Hero's daughter, Oxford academic opposition leader, democracy icon. In April, she added a new one.
4: I'm now a member of the legislature.
9: On Tuesday, in her first public remarks during her U.S. trip, Su Kyi talked about the transition she and several other Burmese democracy activists are making as they settle into seats in parliament.
4: We're finding our way. We are beginning to learn the art of compromise, give and take, achievement of consensus.
9: One big part of finding her way is figuring out how to share public and political space with President Thane Sein. Their evolving relationship has had some friction. Her trip to the World Economic Forum in Bangkok in May was so highly publicized that, at the last minute, Thane Sein canceled his trip there. Suu has also recently spoken out against one of Thane Sein's main goals, an end to U.S. sanctions on Myanmar.
8: I think it's a relationship in
9: progress. Suzanne DiMaggio is at Asia Society, a host of Suchi's talk on Tuesday.
8: I mean let's keep it in perspective. He was a member of the military regime that had essentially imprisoned her all those years.
9: This week Suchi modified her stance on US sanctions. She's now calling for an end to the few that are still in place. DiMaggio says this is one of several public moves Suchi has made that helps lay the groundwork for Thane Sain's visit.
8: Not only did she endorse further easing of sanctions, but she also
4: endorsed him and his government. We must also remember that the reform process was initiated by President Wuthain Sain. I believe that he is keen on democratic reforms.
9: In that point, that Thane Sane deserves credit for setting reforms in motion is a crucial one, says David Steinberg, a Georgetown professor and longtime Myanmar watcher. He says it's getting lost in the fanfare surrounding Suu Kyi's visit.
2: Having them come at the same time, approximately, I don't think was a good idea. To my mind, they need each other to make the reforms inside the country work. And uh, I don't want to see their relationship jeopardized by uh, her overshadowing him.
9: Suu Kyi received Congress's highest civilian honor yesterday in Washington. She then met with President Obama. The meeting was announced quietly, and there was only a brief photo op for the press. That choreography seemed intended, in part, to avoid further overshadowing Thane Sein's visit. It remains to be seen if Thane Sein will have a similar meeting with Obama on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly next week. The decision could have implications for the still-nascent relationship between the U.S. and Myanmar, and the relationship between Aung San Suu Kyi and Thane Sein. Murray Hebert at the Center for Strategic and International Studies says it could also have implications for Thane Sane's standing with the more hardline elements in his own party.
6: So it's very important for him to be encouraged so that when he goes back, you know, so his opponents can't say, so you did all these reforms, you've freed political prisoners, you re- opened the press, you opened the Internet. And what do you get for it? President Obama does, refuses to see you when you go to New York.
9: Of course, the mere fact that people are discussing these issues of diplomatic nuance is testament to how much Myanmar has changed in the past year. For the world, I'm Bruce Wallace, New York.
0: The subject of lots of jokes and lots of love, the Lada, coming up on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, the music of long-forgotten singer Ava Garza
10: plays on thanks to her niece, my mother played those LPs constantly, and I can still see my mother dancing with my father in the den and crying or laughing or telling me stories about Aunt Eva and how the people loved her.
3: MRIs, the world is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Some unexpected topics have wound up on the U.S. presidential campaign agenda leaked video comments, for example, or anti American protests around the globe. But the U.S. economy still tops the agenda. Republican nominee Mitt Romney says if he's elected, he will create 12 million new jobs. President Obama says that he will generate 1 million manufacturing jobs. Achieving either of those numbers would involve bringing back jobs from China or, at the very least, stopping jobs from going there in the first place. The role's Jason Margolis went to the swing state of New Hampshire where job migration is a particular concern.
8: According to a new study, New Hampshire earned the dubious distinction of losing more jobs to China per capita than any other state over the past 10 years. Companies like Watts Water Technology helped the state secure that spot. The company had been making water control valves at its plant in the town of Franklin since 1959. But the economics of building in China were simply too enticing. The company didn't entirely shut things down in New Hampshire, though. And today, the Franklin factory is once again bustling. That's because it's making sense to bring some jobs back home, says operations manager Ken Sargent.
2: The cost of labor in China is constantly going up. The fuel to get it here is constantly going up. And
8: operations are becoming more streamlined in New Hampshire.
2: Which makes it a lot more cost-effective to bring the work back to the States.
8: And Sargent is just happy to be home.
2: In China, I really didn't know what to expect. I had translators for many of my meetings. The cultural barrier is significant.
8: All told, Sargent says the company brought back between 125 and 175 jobs, about two-thirds of what was originally lost. The company is one of only a handful in the state to even consider moving jobs back from China. It does still also manufacture some of its products in China to serve its Asian customers. Still, Watts Water is an insourcing success story, one that many politicians like to highlight. I asked the company's director of operations, Tyler Stone, how much government incentives influence their decisions to relocate jobs.
3: I would say... It can help, but it's usually never the driver. The driver's really around how we serve our markets and our customers. Here's
8: what Richard Devaney thinks of politicians taking credit for bringing manufacturing jobs back from China. Devaney is a professor of strategy at Dartmouth's Tuck School of Business. It's all baloney. That's not to say that government shouldn't try to help businesses compete with China. Devaney says we're in a new economic cold war. He says we're losing in part because we're failing to adapt. Our form of capitalism is at a disadvantage compared to state capitalism. And so far, what we've tried to do is to level the playing field by getting the Chinese to act like us, WTO, world trade. Devaney argues for what he calls strategic capitalism, which is also the name of his new book. Basically, he says American leaders need to become more engaged in economic policymaking, thinking long term. But what voters often hear are promises to restore what we've lost. Dennis DeLay, an economist with the New Hampshire Center for Public Policy Studies, says it doesn't do us any good to look back. If you look at the manufacturing jobs that have been lost, in a very real sense, those jobs have gone and probably will never come back. DeLay says tax breaks or subsidy programs can create a short-term boost. But to promote long-term economic growth, policymakers need to focus on educating the workforce and investing in capital development. I think where New Hampshire competes is in producing high-value-added products that require a significantly trained workforce, and that's a very difficult combination for other countries to be able to match. To see that formula in action, take a ride up the road to the town of Hanover and the company Hypertherm. Evan Smith is the company's president. Well, we make uh, high-temperature metal cutting equipment that's used around the world for uh, cutting plate steel, stainless steel, aluminum. Most of the company's 1,300 employees work here in New Hampshire, and the company exports 20 percent of its product to China. So why not just move the factory to China, too? Well, there's nothing that, technically that requires it to be here in the U.S., Smith compares his company to successful German manufacturers. These are companies that usually have a very deep tradition in a a niche technology, but have established a, a worldwide leadership position in that, invest for the long term. That includes investing in workers. The company has put a couple of million dollars into a training institute to ensure a steady stream of skilled machinists. The company got help for this from the states of Vermont and New Hampshire and the federal government. That's the type of government support many in the state are calling for. The presidential candidates do address workforce training in their platforms, but most of their economic arguments center on taxes. Mitt Romney promises lower business taxes. Barack Obama says he'll end tax breaks for companies that outsource American jobs. I asked Evan Smith at Hypertherm how much he considers taxes when deciding where to manufacture. I can't think of a single strategy meeting that we've had where where that's come up. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Hanover, New Hampshire.
0: There's more of Jason's coverage of politics and the presidential campaign at theworld.org. For nearly four decades, the Lada has been a fixture on Russian roads. This compact car first became popular during the Soviet era. But as this Lada owner can attest, it's got some endearing qualities.
11: How would I describe a Lada? Well, it's really what cars used to be before they became appliances. You know, it smells like oil and gasoline and, you know, there's no automatic transmission, no power steering, um... You really have to drive it.
0: Now, though, the classic Lada model is being phased out. So for our geo-quiz today, can you name the Russian city in the Western Urals where that last classic Lada rolled off the line? Here's a hint, maybe. It's the capital of Udmurt Republic. Americans aren't the only ones gearing up for an election. So are the residents of the Palestinian city of Hebron in the West Bank. A municipal election is scheduled there for October. And the last time residents of Hebron were able to elect their city officials directly was back in 1976. The vote is organized by groups. Candidates join lists, and voters select the lists that they like most. And for the first time, one of the candidates' lists on the ballot is made up entirely of women. The world's Matthew Bell met the leader of the all-women's bloc out on the campaign trail.
12: Maysoon Kawazmi says she's been busy going door to door to get her campaign off the ground. On a recent afternoon, she walks into a Hebron appliance shop, holds out her hand, and starts introducing herself. Kowasmi is a 43-year-old mother of five. Her style of dress pegs her as a middle-class Muslim. She wears a headscarf but doesn't describe herself as religious. She's a journalist and a women's rights activist. So Kawazmi's no stranger to working outside the home. She comes from a well-known Hebron family, but she's new to politics. Kawazmi is leading an independent block of candidates, all women. That's a first for Palestinian politics. When she mentions this to a customer at the appliance shop, the young woman in a green headscarf says she likes what she's hearing.
4: I will support
10: a women's list for sure because I feel that this society here is male-oriented and whatever institution we're talking about, we need women in order to highlight the challenges that women face all the time in their life.
12: One of the challenges Kawasmi and her running mates face is voter skepticism. That becomes clear as she greets a retiree out on the sidewalk.
4: I do not believe in these elections. She asks
12: why.
4: Elections are a farce. If our president takes a permit when he wants to move out of his office from the Israelis, so how can we express our views freely in the context of an occupation?
12: Back in her office, Kowasmi tells me her campaign motto is, Together, we can. But she says she's not making unrealistic promises.
4: I can't finish the occupation. I can't pass the settler out. But I can do something that we must have to talk and to work together as a people in Palestine and in, in a Hebron city. Kawasmi
12: becomes animated when speaking about her political goals. She's got the uncynical, can-do vibe of a rookie politician. First, Kawasmi says she aims to tackle quality of life issues, water, education, electricity, and public facilities.
4: I told the people, I need your help. Not you need my help i need your help we must have to sharing together to fix our problem in this municipality and this is very important
12: Kawasmi tells me even if her list fails to capture a single seat on the city council she will still be proud of what she and her colleagues have done they are professional women without ties to major palestinian political factions conservative islamists are speaking out against them but the thing is says political scientist Assad Awawi of Hebron University they might actually win.
2: <laughs>
12: Away we says Maysoon Kawazmi and her women's list is likely to capture a couple of seats on the city council. He says that's because the Islamic group Hamas is boycotting this election. Hamas is popular in Hebron, but a local Hamas leader tells me the group's people can't risk campaigning openly because they might be arrested by the Palestinian Authority or by Israeli security forces. That political vacuum could provide an opportunity for Kawasmi and her running mates. The question is, will voters in Hebron turn their backs on the other political factions, including Fatah, which controls the West Bank? Kawasmi says yes.
4: The people have experience with the, all the party, and this is our chance now. That's enough. The party are playing with our life, and now this is our chance.
12: For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Hebron in the West Bank.
0: Back to Russia now, and the last classic Lada rolling off the assembly line—the cheap sedan that was so popular in Soviet times—is now being phased out. But it lives on, even here in the United States. Andre Lukatsky lives in Chicago and still owns and drives one of those classic Ladas. How about your Lada here in the USA, Andre? What kind of uh, shape is it in?
11: Well, I'm happy to say that it's uh, fully restored. I put a lot of work and effort into getting it as. Close to a new condition as possible. It's a uh, bright red. It has some uh, soup top parts in the engine and transmission,
0: like a high-end turbocharged Lada.
11: <laughs> well, not not quite turbocharged, but uh, it, it it does have a performance carburetor and um, you know a higher uh, ratio rear end and things like that.
0: Now, the reason that I was kind of pulling your leg on that is because the Lada is not known for for uh, high performance.
11: Oh, absolutely. There's, there's plenty of jokes about that. You know, uh, as they say, you know, what do you call a lotta that's going 120 miles an hour? What? Well, it must have fallen off a cliff.
0: <laughs> Give me another one.
11: That's pretty good. What do you call a lot of driver that says he uh, got a speeding ticket? What? Well, you call him a liar. I
0: should have gotten that one. What else? Oh,
11: uh, there's other lot of jokes that poke fun at uh Uh, how inexpensive uh, of a vehicle they are. Oh,
0: actually, uh, someone told me one. Uh, How do you double the value of a Lada?
11: Oh, yeah, that's easy. Uh, You just fill it up with gas.
0: (laughs) So given the fact that it's the butt of all these jokes, Andre, what do you love about your Lada?
11: Well, I grew up around them, uh, you know, originally from uh, Moscow, Russia. One of my first memories from the age of four was uh, writing in my grandfather's Lada to um, go to the hospital to pick up my mom and my uh, newborn sister.
0: Hmm. So, so that was like the equivalent of their limousine on the way home.
11: Well, that was my grandpa's car, yeah. and uh, you know, it was it was just something that was in the family for many many years, and a lot of childhood memories. Uh, you know, these little quirky uh, vehicles. So, how are they quirky? Well, you know how most modern cars, they either work or they don't work. Well, with Lattice, it's, it's you know, works, doesn't work, maybe works, uh, maybe feels like working, maybe, you know, it decides to not work. Um,
0: oh, the good old days.
11: Yeah. What's happened this week was the last of the classic Lattice was finally taken uh, off of the assembly line. So the older generation of Ladas came to an end.
0: The classic generation. Now, for our geography quiz, Andre, we're asking listeners where the Ladas have been manufactured. Do you know the answer?
11: Well, this assembly line where they were manufactured was in uh, Izhevsk, Russia, which is a town just west of the Ural mountain range. And it's actually the same town or city where they make AK 47 assault rifles. Uh-oh. They are literally a couple of blocks away where they make
0: AK-47s. Do they ever use the same parts or the same technology? Could it be?
11: Yeah, there's a joke about that, too. It's (laughs) it's funny. Uh, You know, what do you get if you don't follow the assembly instructions for a LADA? Well, you get an AK-47.
0: Andre, I guess you know them all, huh?
11: Oh, yeah, I know lots of lot of jokes, or, as you can say, I know a lot of jokes.
0: you know a lot of jokes. <laughs> that's right, just to <laughs> simplify things. So the answer to our geo quiz is indeed Ishevsk, which is Ishevsk. spelled oh i z h e v s k so there you are in Chicago with a lot of ladas. Do you drive them around still?
11: I do take it out on the nice warm days um I do want to preserve it as long as possible. It's kind of a relic of an era. And I'm hoping that my kids uh, sometime in the future will get to uh, drive it and enjoy it as much as I do.
0: Andre Lukatsky, proud LADA owner in Chicago who moderates the LADA USA online forum. We'll make a link, in fact, at theworld.org. Nice to talk to you, Andre. Thanks a lot.
11: All right. Thanks, Lisa.
0: Tomorrow, what to do when you're out of a job? Get your fingernails dirty. Our story from down on the farm in Italy tomorrow on PRI.
3: PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last-chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 Central on PBS.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. That vintage voice belongs to the late Eva Garza. Garza was born in Texas, and she was a star in Mexico. Here in the United States, she was one of the first Latina crossover artists for the Decca records label. That was decades ago, though. Today, Eva Garza's music is largely forgotten. Her niece, though, wants to change that. Leticia Rodriguez is also a Texan. She's got a new album that includes covers of many of the songs first made famous by her Aunt Eva. Here's Rodriguez's version of the track that we just heard. It's called Incertidumbre.
4: Leticia. Yes. That's a
0: beautiful tribute to your aunt. Thank you. Even even that song right there. Now you stay pretty close to the original in your own version. Do you remember when you first heard your aunt Eva Garza sing it?
10: I listened to uh, Eva Garza singing on all of her LPs that she had stacked at my house. My mother stacked them all at her house. My memories are, you know, from the earliest memories I have are maybe three or four or five. And I was very, very young. Because she died in in 1966. So you were pretty young then. Yes. I never knew her personally. I just knew her music and through stories of uh, my mother and my aunt, Tina. So you said there's a stack of of, uh, your Aunt Eva's albums in your house. You used to hear her voice flooding your home as you were growing up. My mother played those LPs constantly. They were obviously her favorite LPs, and uh, I can still see my mother dancing with my father in the den and crying or laughing or telling me stories about Aunt Eva and what, what country Eva was in and what she was doing at the time and how the people loved her. What do you mean what country she was in? She was an internationally known singer. One of the reasons I wanted to do this CD and pay homage to my tia Eva was because here in Texas, a lot of people don't know who she is. Even though she was born in San Antonio, she left uh, to become a singer in Mexico City. She lived in Mexico City for many years, she lived in New York for many years. She traveled uh, all over Latin America, you know, Colombia, Peru, Puerto Rico, Cuba. She was known all over the place. But here in Texas, only, I learned this recently, only the radio announcers knew who she was a lot of times. So she was more popular abroad. I guess you could say that. As far as I know, she was more popular abroad. People. She had a big name in Mexico City. She was the number one singer in Mexico City for maybe a dozen years in the 1950s. She ended up being buried in Mexico City. They took her on as their own.
0: Well, let's hear again from your aunt, Eva Garza, who died when she was just, I think, in her 40s, back in 1966. This is a song, first we'll hear your aunt's original version called Volver.
4: Yo adivino el parpadeo De las luces que a lo lejos Van marcando mi retorno Son las mismas que alumbraron Con sus pálidos reflejos Ondas horas de dolor Y aunque no quise el regreso Siempre se vuelve al primer amor
0: Now we're going to hear your version
4: La quieta calle, Donde me cobijo Tuya su vida Tuya De las que con
10: hoy me ven volver, volver.
0: Leticia, that's quite a departure from the way your aunt sang the same song.
10: Yes, it is. And I had so much fun doing it, too.
0: How did you decide to take it in a different direction?
10: Well, I wanted to also claim this album for myself. This is my first debut as a As a singer in in a big public sense, I've been singing all my life because I belong to a family of musicians in a sense, but um, although I wanted to honor my aunt and honor my heritage, I also recognized that this is my CD and this is my music and uh, my voice, and uh, so I thought it important to address this music of my aunt, and in some songs, let it be traditional and then in other in other songs, that it be um, my interpretation of it, so that it also reflects my life and also reflects the world today. This is interesting.
0: I wonder if, since um, many people will be introduced both to your aunt's music and to your music through an album like this and through an interview like this, tell us what maybe the hallmarks are of of your aunt's music and then of yours, as you as you kind of distinguish yourself from hers.
10: Well, let's see. In a nutshell, my aunt's music, uh, I would say the richness, clarity, the tonality, intonation. She just had the voice that just knocked you off your feet. In terms of my music, what I like to do is be multicultural to include all sounds, all experiences that I have grown up with, to put it into my music. Like Milonga Sentimental, for example. It uses a Mozambique rhythm, even though it's a song from Argentina. I think it's important for me to say, I am, you know, a Tejana, I am a Latina, I am an American. You know, I'm not trying to mimic someone. I'm trying to say, this is also who I am. All of these things.
0: I'd love it if you would tell us about uh the what's actually the first song on the CD. Uh Tenies que ser tu? is that how you pronounce
10: it? Very good. Yes. <laughs> You're very kind. Tenies que ser tu means it basically it to be you, it has to be you. It's an adorable song. It's a short sweet. I love you, I adore you, you make me happy, how can I live without you song. I sing this to my son with great joy because he just makes me smile all the day long.
0: By the way, Leticia, as we let you go here, do you know if your aunt sang it for
10: anyone in particular? No, I don't, but I bet she was thinking about somebody. Maybe even you. (laughs) You never know. Leticia, thank you. You're very
4: welcome. (laughs)
0: Singer Leticia Rodriguez speaking to us from Station KUT in Austin, Texas. Her debut album is called La Americana. You can listen to this song in its entirety at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for being with us.
4: Para quererte como jamás a nadie querido Para besarte como a ninguno nunca besé. Estoy viviendo por ti.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can.
7: PRI Public Radio International